Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is Between the Testaments. Have you ever wondered what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament? When the Old Testament closes, the people have returned to their land and after 70 years are living under the Persian Empire, though they have significant freedoms, including the right to worship God and the rebuilt temple, they are still under foreign occupation. However, when we begin reading the New Testament, the whole scene is different. Now the Romans instead of the Persians are in power, and we encounter these new religious groups like Sadducees and Pharisees. Where did they come from? What happened in between? And what about this whole Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire, which is completely absent between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Though you might assume the Romans took over from the Persians, the story in ancient Israel is much more complicated than that. In fact, after the Greeks took over the Persian Empire, they took over the land of ancient Israel. Through a course of actions, the people ended up fighting the Greek empires and winning their independence and establishing a kingdom that lasted for around a century called the Hasmonean dynasty. Oftentimes, historians refer to this as the Maccabean period, named after the revolutionary freedom fighter Judah the Maccabee. Understanding this interim is crucial for New Testament studies and explains why so many Judeans in Jesus' day were naming their kids John, Judah, or Judas, and Simon. This lecture was part of a class called Exploring Scripture. To access more of this class, log on to lhim.org. I'm just going to go ahead and get started with some review type stuff. So I just wanted to look at some of the basic major events that we have covered. This is Brother Abraham, or sometimes we call him Father Abraham because he's sort of the father of the faith. To him, God made a promise that he would give him the land, he would multiply his descendants, and he would bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse Abraham. In other words, God's got his back. Then, after some time, Isaac was born, and then Israel was born, and Israel had 12 sons, and they journeyed to Egypt, and Egypt was a great place, wasn't it? Uh, they, the pharaoh in charge was very uh, supportive of this whole thing, but over time, the Egyptians turned on them, and they oppressed them severely, enslaved them, and so God liberated them from Egypt and brought them all the way to the mountain of God where the law was given to them on Mount Sinai. And uh, that was Moses who led them during that time. And then after Moses died, after a 40-year period of time, they entered the promised land under Joshua. The book of Joshua is the conquest of the promised land. It reads like a military uh, list of military battles. And then after that, we have the first king anointed. Who was that? Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And this is somewhere around 1,000 B.C. Uh, nobody's really exactly sure. And then uh, the, the second king, uh, I should mention the second king is who? King David. And David is just the man after God's own heart. He establishes Jerusalem as the place for God to put his name. 
And what he does is he makes all the provision to build the temple. And his son Solomon ends up building the holy place, the temple where God dwells among his people. Before that, he was in the tabernacle. But before long, the kingdom divided. You had Israel and Judah split apart. And we heard all about that, how these kings did not remove the idols. And so the northern section of the kingdom called Israel was taken captive. They were taken out by the Assyrian Empire. I'm going to show you the Assyrian Empire in a moment. And then we had Judah also follow just in the same way. Did not remove the idols from the land and continue with the idolatry until Judah was taken captive into Babylon. And that lasted for 70 years, after which they returned from exile, which uh, Reverend Bill Yukona shared with us on Sunday. And eventually, Nehemiah built the wall around Jerusalem. And you don't have a city until you have a wall in their culture, because that was really your stability. If you had a wall, then you really had a city. You really had a city-state, and Judah is now, in some sense, restored, although it's still paying taxes to the Persian Empire. And then, not until... It's actually before 1 B.C. I tried to put it off to the side a bit. Jesus is born. So I know the question you're all dying to ask, right? What about this period of time right here? Between when Nehemiah builds the wall and Jesus is born. Isn't that just the natural question everybody's thinking? I'm just joking. But that's what I want to talk about tonight. So I I want to talk about that red line right there from uh, the time when the people get back to the land and the time when Jesus is born and give you a furious race through that, those hundreds of years of history, through the great empires, so that you can have some context and understand what, it was, what was the world like when Jesus was born. Because it wasn't just a bunch of people living in uh, Jerusalem under the uh, return from exile like under Nehemiah. The world changed a lot during this time frame. So, I've got a little animation to help us here. And this will share with us the various empires of the world. If you watch the entire thing, it takes 90 seconds and it goes all the way up to modern day. But we're not going to watch the whole thing. This is the kingdom of Egypt in the south. And in the north, we have the Hittite Empire. And in between the two, Israel is established under Saul and King David. Israel doesn't last that long because the Assyrian Empire comes, but Judah remains until the Babylonian Empire comes and carries Judah into captivity. And then the Persian Empire takes over the Babylonian Empire. So Judah automatically switches from being somebody paying taxes to Babylon to being somebody paying taxes to Persia. And that's when the people return to the land. And then... The Greek Empire, also called the Macedonian Empire. It's called the Macedonian Empire because the famous person who founded the Greek Empire was from a place called Macedon, and his name was Alexander, right? I'll show you the next one just because it's cool, not because it's necessarily relevant. But you notice the empires keep getting bigger, right? That's the Roman Empire, just huge. Okay, so this Greek empire is what I want to talk to you about because that's what was going on in this period of time in between when the people came back to the land and when Jesus was born. 
And so the last book of the Old Testament is called Malachi. And no one's exactly sure when Malachi was written, although people are pretty sure that it was the last book. And what we have in Malachi is the people giving God not the best anymore, giving God second best, cheating on the sacrifices, sort of like giving God the, the sheep that wasn't going to have any kids or the blind ox or something. You know what I mean? Really trying to cheat God out of, out of things. And so Israel was not doing all that well. Meanwhile, there was this 20-year-old kid in Macedonia, the son of Philip, who was uh, the king of that little section of the world. And uh, when his dad died in 336 B.C., Alexander became the king. He was a brilliant military commander, and he was undefeated in battle. He went against the Persian Empire. Now, Greece is just this little, tiny country, just this little, puny country that isn't unified with itself. And yet, here comes this 20-year-old who says, I'm going to unify Greece, and let's take out the Persian Empire, which is just crazy. But what he does is he goes across the Aegean Sea and he attacks some cities that Persia had taken from Greece and he gets them back. And then he fights another battle and he wins that. And he fights another battle and he wins and he just keeps fighting these battles and keeps winning. He finally faces the millions of Persian troops on the battlefield and Darius III, the king of Persia, is there. And in the heat of battle... It opens up, and Alexander actually sees Darius III on his chariot, and he just, he just runs at him. He just, he just, king after king, grabs his spear and just chases directly after the other king. Well, Darius III didn't have the nerve that Alexander had, and he turned his chariot around and ran away. And so the, uh, the army, the Persian army, started running away too. When you see the king run, you run. And the Greeks won the battle. And when you beat the emperor, guess what you get? The empire, right? You don't have to go conquer every place. You just inherit the whole thing. But you know what? Alexander wasn't okay with that. By the way, this is what the world looked like when Alexander grew up. Aristotle was his tutor. This is uh, how they would do geography when he was a kid. You had Europe. This is uh, Greece right over here. There's Athens. So you had Europe. These were some mountains, some more mountains. Libya, what we call Africa. And then there's Asia. And, and there's an ocean around the world, you know? And so that's, that's what they conceived of as the world. By the time Alexander finished, finished his conquests, this is what the world now looked like. Uh, he had started over here in Greece, and he just had this thing about going east. And he just kept going east and kept going east and kept going east. He got so far east that they stopped using horses and started using elephants in their warfare, sort of like the old-fashioned tank. And he got all the way to the edge of India and even conquered part of India. Alexander the Great was undefeated in battle. So Judah, the, the people of God, naturally became part of the Greek Empire. They were part of the Persian Empire, now they're part of the Greek Empire. And this is where they are, right over here in the Middle East. And so in 331 B.C., Alexander makes his way down to Egypt. You guys know where Egypt is, right down here? And he's declared to be a god. He's, he's de declared to be the son of of Zeus by the Egyptian priests. Isn't that something? And so from then on, Alexander referred to the god Zeus Ammon as his true father. So that's, something we, that's a pattern we find with people who get into power is that they, they, think, they tend to think they're God, or at least the son of God. Very common. Um, 
from Alexander on. Alexander was brilliant. He had great military strategies. Aristotle was his personal tutor. And his big thing about empire building was not just conquering the world. It was to make the world Greece. What good is the world if it's uncivilized? So he decided that he wanted to civilize the world. And that process of making the world like Greece is what we call Hellenizing. Hellas was the word for Greece in Greek. So it's called Hellenizing, is converting people into this uh, way of thinking. So just imagine for a second that, that you, as, as, let's, let's say, for example, America just took over Mexico. And the uh, president comes to you and he says to you, I want to make Mexico America. How do we do it? You say, well, President, first of all, they speak Spanish. That's the problem. We should force them to speak English. Second of all, we've got to rewrite their history because their history is totally biased. All right? So let's, let's teach history the American way. Third of all, we need McDonald's, lots of them. Fourth of all, we need lots of Chinese imported toys for the kids to play with. And Hollywood, you know, I mean, you would, you would want to get the various cultural things into Mexico. And how hard would it be to convert Mexico or to Americanize Mexico? It would be really hard. People would not be like, oh, I'll just speak English instead of Spanish. You, you know what I mean? People aren't just going to change, right? This is where Alexander the Great was brilliant. What he did was he would leave his military men in cities as he traveled for them to intermarry the, the native women and have lots of children. And who, 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 who is it that you can influence the most to the culture of your choice? Your children, right? So if you have lots of children, within a couple of generations, suddenly they're, they're all speaking Greek and they're all loving the Greek philosophers and all these other Greek things. And so he was able to accomplish this process of Hellenizing in a lot of the area he conquered. Uh, in 10 years, he founded 25 Greek cities in the Middle East, most notably Alexandria and Egypt. He spread the Greek language, the Greek religion, the Greek philosophy, the Greek way of building cities, Greek recreation, Greek educational structures, Greek sports. Uh, by the way, Greek sports were only played by men, and they were played nude. And that brought with it an attitude towards the body. The Greeks love the form of a human body. And they considered circumcision to be mutilation and repulsive. We'll get more into that in a little while. So by the time of Jesus, Greek was the international language, which is why your New Testament and my New Testament is written in Greek. Because if you want a document to get out there, that's the language everybody spoke. His method of acculturation was very successful. However, he died at 32 years old before he was able to convert everybody in his empire to Hellenization. Um, nobody really knows what he died of. There's different guesses as to what it was. I've got them there in the notes. And his successors were much more interested in military power and political power than Hellenizing the culture. And so this Hellenizing influence was just in the air. Okay, It wasn't, it wasn't forced on people, but in Judah, people started getting sophisticated. People started learning this Greek stuff this Hellenized culture. And so I've got a little quote here from a book uh, written by a guy named Max Demont named Jews, God, and History. And he says, um, I'm on page two there, Responses to Hellenism in Judah. He says, When the Jews came under Grecian rule, their real enemy was Hellenism. 
The subsequent fight between Greek and Jew was the fight between the two ideas packaged for export. Alexander's Hellenic culture and the Judaic religion of the prophets. The prophets won. The Hellenization of the Jews began inconspicuously. The first was a daytime breakthrough between 9 and 5, when Jewish and Greek businessmen met in bazaars and coffee houses. The second took place after 5, when the Jewish and Greek youths met in gymnasiums, theaters, and cabarets. The after 5 social encounters between the Jewish and Greek youth had an even more corrosive effect on traditional Jewish ways than the 9 to 5 business intermixing of their elders. Greek games were exceedingly popular, and soon, nude wrestling was commonplace among Jewish males. In the theater, the younger set came in contact with the urbane sophistication of the Greeks, and from here, the door led to the cabaret and to the couch of the concubine. Soon, pleasure was pursued as a policy, and folly soared into philosophy. The road to apostasy is like falling away from the faith. Ran from the front pew in the synagogue to a seat in the theater to the embrace of the hetera. Hetera is like a a very classy prostitute you pay a lot of money for. To a front pew in the pagan temple. And so what happened is the youth of Judah were lured away into this Hellenistic influence saying, I want to do sports the way the Greeks do sports. I want to do... um, Uh, philosophy and the nightlife the way that the world around me is doing it and there was a real shift that occurred here so there was a response to that and there's a group of Jews named the Hasidians that rose up to fight for the hearts and the lives of the youth in Judah Uh, this is not the Hasidic Jews they're the 18th century people that don't change the uh, don't update the look of their clothing you know with the curls and the hat and the black That's not these guys. These guys are 2nd, 3rd century B.C., the Hasidians. And most Jews remain anti-Hellenistic. Most Jews were against this Greek influence that was just coming in all over the place. Most Jews were against it. So the Hasidians, they were were pretty popular. They had two things that they were really standing for. Number one, the Mosaic Law. The law of God, which says, on the eighth day you shall circumcise your child. I don't care if it's unpopular. I don't care if the other people think it's grotesque. This is the covenant of God he made with Abraham. Mosaic law says you shall not eat pig. You shall not eat pork products. You should not eat different things. And the people were very strong on that. Uh, The other thing that they had a firm belief in is that the Davidic line of kings would be restored. There was this hope that if we just persevered, if we could just survive, eventually God would raise up the Davidic king, the son of David, who would make everything right. And so we weren't, the people said, we weren't going to lose our religion. We're not going to lose our faith in God, our way of being Jewish, because we have hope that the Messiah will come. And so the Hasidians were a political party. They originally formed to protest drinking and carousing, but now they protested all Greek influence. All right. So that's going on culturally. Meanwhile, the Greek Empire, after Alexander died, split into different sections. That was it originally, and now it's split into these different sections. The two main sections I want to talk about are these two. This is like a greenish color right here. This is called the Seleucid Empire. And then the bluish color is the Ptolemaic Empire, ruled over by the Ptolemies, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, the Ptolemies. And the Seleucids ruled over Asia Minor and Syria originally. They were just in this area, then they expanded it out east. Um, And the Ptolemies, they originally had the area we call Palestine, 
right? The area where the Judeans were living. And so the Ptolemies, they had a live and let live policy. Look, you pay your taxes, you don't revolt, we're cool with you. Okay, so that, those are the, now these are all Greek, uh, this is all fragments of the Greek empire. You know, just because they're in Egypt doesn't mean they're Egyptian. They're, they're Greek people. Uh, and they're both fighting, it's like a long arm wrestle that lasts a couple hundred years. And so you can notice that the area where we're interested in, the area, the Holy Land, is colored in both colors. Because sometimes it was under this influence, and other times it would be wrestled back. Because if you wanted to march your troops to attack the blue guys right here, the Ptolemies in the south, where would you have to march through? Judea, right? Or Judah. You shouldn't call it Judea yet. Judah. And if you wanted to attack back the king of the south, Daniel 11 talks all about this stuff. You wanted to fight back, you had to march again. So Judah is getting constantly marched through by all these different... Uh, armies going back and forth between these two empires. But they were under Ptolemy control for quite a while. They paid taxes. The, the, they worked it out. Look, the high priest can be in charge of you, and you have the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin will handle issues that come up, like a court, a supreme court, and establish laws in your land, and the high priest will be the chief administrator. And so the high priest and the Sanhedrin will work together to rule over you, They'll pay us taxes, and we don't have to really go see you anymore. You know, you're, you're fine so long as everything is under control. <coughs> they gave them complete cultural and religious freedom. However, in 198 B.C., Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, succeeded in wrestling Palestine from the Ptolemaic Empire. That means that this is now green territory. And... Antiochus, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to have time to go through all these different points, but I'll just summarize them for you. Antiochus III said, you know what? We need to get back to that great Greek empire. We, we need to conquer the Ptolemies. And then we'll have an empire like Alexander the Great had. That's what we need to do. So he marched down to Egypt. And, you know, something else was brewing at the same time. In the West, there was this upstart republic called Rome. And on the east, there was this new empire called the Parthians. Okay? So by this time, all of this had been taken over by the Parthians, and all of this had been taken over by the Romans. And so now these two guys are fighting it out, and they're saying, somebody's got to win this so we can stand against the Romans on the west and the Parthians on the east. And so Antiochus III marched his troops down to Egypt. He was doing well. And you know what he ran into in Egypt? The Roman legions. The Ptolemies in the south in Egypt had made an alliance with Rome, and the Roman legions were there. And so Antiochus III saw the Roman legions, and he said, I'll be back. <laughs> he went back home. He said, that was intense. We need a plan to unite the empire, so, and we need, we need nationalistic fervor, we need patriotism, we need our people to support us. Now, what area had just come under his control? Well, the area of Palestine where all the Jews were living. And you know what? They didn't have the same language or culture. Only, only some of the people did. So he says, we need to Hellenize everybody in our area. So Antiochus III starts Hellenizing everyone, which includes setting up Greek statues in the temples and, and things like that. And the Jew, he finally gets to the Jews, and the Jews say to him, look, we give you troops for your military. We pay our taxes. We are supporting you. Don't mess with our temple. Don't mess with our law. And we'll be okay. And Antiochus III said, all right. He said, all right, no big deal. Well, he dies, and his son Antiochus IV takes over. 
Antiochus IV is not the same. Antiochus IV is very strict. He says, look, I see the Romans in the west, I see the Parthians in the east. We have to take over Egypt and the Ptolemies in order to stand. And so he starts a very stern program of Hellenization. And so some Jews decide the best way to beat him is to join him. Let's put up Jason to be the high priest to rule over our area, to rule over Jerusalem. And so uh, Antiochus IV says, okay, this guy's pro-Hellenizing, let's put him in charge. They put Jason, the high priest, in charge. And Jason, in 12 months, is able to do more than these empires in 125 years to pervert the people's beliefs and practices. He allowed pagan rites to be performed in the temple. Mind you, this is the high priest. Greek statues are introduced and installed in the holy place. What's, what's the uh, uh, third commandment? You shall not make a graven image, a carved image. A statue is a carved image. Not only are they making them, they're putting them in the holy place of the temple. That's the high priest doing it. Jewish priests are in Greek costumes, and they're doing Greek rituals. Greek games are performed by naked Jewish boys in the temple courtyards. Jewish representatives are sent to pagan festivals to represent Jerusalem, to worship other gods. And so anger and resentment burned hot, and the Hasidian party ballooned as many Jews joined the, the group. The Hasidians began to thunder against promiscuity and idolatry. The Hasidians grew very strong because of this evil high priest named Jason. And so Antiochus, I have to summarize again, but Antiochus the, the fourth said, all right, Hellenization is underway. Jason, my man, he's in charge of Jerusalem. He's got those people in line. Now is the time to attack the Ptolemaic Empire. Now is the time to attack Egypt. So Antiochus IV, this is Antioch right here. He, match, he marches down his troops into Egypt. He's doing great. He's doing great. He's, he's, he's conquering city after city in Egypt. And then he comes against who? The Roman ambassador. And the Roman ambassador says to him, if you attack Alexandria, which is the last city left in Egypt, we, we consider that as an act of war against the Roman Republic. I need you to make up your mind right now. And this guy, he took a stick and he drew a circle around Antiochus IV in the sand. And he said, before you leave, before you cross that line, I need you to declare whether or not you're going to agree to these terms and go home. And so Antiochus IV said, well, I, I need to talk to my council. You know, I need to think this through. And he said, look, if you cross that line without agreeing to retreat right now, we consider that an act of military aggression, and we will come and we will fight you. So Antiochus IV said, fine. And the Roman ambassador shook his hand, and guess what? Antiochus IV comes home defeated. And guess what he has to pass in order to go home? Jerusalem, he's not happy. Meanwhile, while he was down there in Egypt, a rumor floated back up to Jerusalem that Antiochus IV had died in battle. And so, the Hasideans, they killed Jason and all of Jason's cronies and all the people that were installing these statues and his other Greek stuff. They threw them over the temple wall, which is a hundred foot drop. And then they threw the statues down on top of them. And then they started going after all these Hellenists, all these people who are trying to bring in this Greek culture, and they started killing them all. So, the rumor, the rumor was false. 
And Antiochus IV was really ticked off. So as he got up to Jerusalem, he was already angry, and he found out that his man, Jason, the high priest he put in charge, is now dead, and all the people that supported him are dead. So he went in and he killed 10,000 Jews indiscriminately to teach them a lesson. And you know what? If he had stopped there, maybe that's all there, that would have happened. But um, he, he killed 10,000 Jews. He put new statues in the temple, defiled it again. And then he did this one other thing. I'm on number six on page five here. Out of spite, Antiochus IV decided to outlaw observance of the Mosaic law, including the Sabbath and circumcision. Officials were sent throughout the villages of Judah in order to force them to offer sacrifice to pagan gods. Then we have what is recorded for us in the Jewish book of 1 Maccabees, which is not a biblical book, but it's a historical book. Then the king, the king then issued a proclamation to his whole kingdom that all were to become a single people, each nation renouncing its particular customs. All the Gentiles conformed to the king's decree, and many Israelites chose to accept his religion, sacrificing to idols, profaning the Sabbath. The king also sent edicts by messengers to Jerusalem, to the towns of Judah, directing them to adopt customs foreign to the country, banning burnt offerings, sacrifices, and libations from the sanctuary, profaning Sabbaths and feasts, defiling the sanctuary and everything holy, building altars, shrines, and temples for idols, sacrificing pigs and unclean beasts, leaving their sons uncircumcised and prostituting themselves to all kinds of impurity and abomination so that they should forget the law and revoke all observance of it. So we're talking about forced, brutal um, extermination of your belief in God that's going on here. Anyone not obeying the king's command was to be put to death. So either you sacrifice to the idols or you die. Writing in such terms to every part of his kingdom, the king appointed inspectors for the whole people and directed all the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice city by city. How do you find out if a Jew has left his, his, his uh, b- beliefs and joined the Greek way of doing things? You say to him, hey, sacrifice to this idol of uh, Zeus right here. No true Jew would ever do that. So that's what they did. They went village by little tiny village, and they said, here's the idols. You're going to sacrifice to them. Who are the leading men of this city? You do it first. If you don't, you're dead. That's the kind of persecution the people were under. Many of the people, that is, every apostate, as somebody who falls away from the law, rallied to them and so committed evil in the country. A lot of people said, you know what? We, we can't fight this. They're an empire. We're just a piddly little city-state. What are we going to do? Let's just, you know, we'll cross our fingers. We'll offer the pinch of incense to the uh, altar of Zeus. So what? So what? You know? A lot of people got into it. They forced Israel into hiding any possible place of refuge. On the 15th day of Kislev in the year 145, this is 145 of the Greek Empire, not of our years, the king built the appalling abomination on top of the altar of burnt offering. And altars were burnt in the surrounding towns of Judah and incense offered at the doors of the houses in the streets. Any books of the law that came to light were torn up and burned. Imagine that the Bible is being systematically taken out of the hands of the people and burned. This is before the printing press. This is when you had to copy by hand, letter by letter, the entire Hebrew Bible. This is really a big deal to get it burned. We're talking about something that's as valuable as a house. 
a book of, uh, of the Bible. You know what I mean? Um, and they're tearing them up and burning them. Whenever anyone was discovered possessing a copy of the covenant or practicing the law, the king's decree sentenced him to death. Month after month, they took harsh action against any offenders and they discovered in the towns of Israel. On the 25th day of each month, sacrifice was offered on the altar erected on top of the altar of burnt offering. Women who had had their children circumcised, that's another way you can see if somebody's practicing the Jewish law, just look at the baby if he's a boy. If you had your children sacrificed, uh, they were put to death according to the edict with their babies hung around their necks. And the members of their household and those who had performed the circumcision were executed with them. Yet there were many in Israel who stood firm and found the courage to refuse unclean food. They chose death rather than contamination by such fair or profanation of the Holy Covenant. And they were executed. It was a truly dreadful retribution that visited Israel. And this is the most severe persecution they had faced up until this time. Maybe. I don't know if you would say Egypt was worse. Okay, so they came to this one town, Modane. They came to Modane and they said, who are, the, who are the notable men among you? I want you to be the first ones to offer sacrifice to the, uh, the pagan altar here. So the people in the town say, well, Mattathias, he's got five sons. Is it five sons? Yeah, he's got five sons. He's the chief among us. So the, uh, the dignitary of the Seleucid Empire says to him, all right, Mattathias, up to bat, you first. Mattathias says, no, no. You can kill me. I'm not sacrificing to your gods. I don't care if every other nation around me does it. I'm not doing it. My sons are not doing it. My daughters are not doing it. We're not doing it. You can kill us. We're not doing it. While that's going on, one of the Jews says, I'll sacrifice. You know, and he just goes up and he offers the sacrifice, probably to lighten the tension, right? So Mattathias just flips out. He just loses it. And he runs and kills his own fellow Jewish person on the altar like Phineas did in the Old Testament. This caused a Braveheartish kind of riot. If you remember the movie Braveheart in the beginning, right? Where there's only a few troops there, and the town rises up, and they kill the troops, and they declare their independence, and then they say, uh-oh. And they, they head to the hills, right? They head to the hills because if you stay in the town, the army is going to come, and you're dead. And you know what? They fought guerrilla warfare. Little battle by little battle by little battle against the Seleucid Empire, against Antiochus IV and his troops, and they just kept winning. Battle after battle. And so after a year, Mattathias died and his son Judas took over. Judas was so fearless in battle, so incredible on the battlefield, that he got the nickname the Hammer, Maccabeus. So Judah Maccabee is now the leader. He's one of Mattathias' five sons. And he eventually defeats the, the uh, pagans to such a point that he wins back religious freedom. He kicks them out of the temple. He cleanses the temple. And he rededicates the temple. The word for dedicate in Hebrew is Hanukkah. This is the commemoration of Hanukkah. And so the battles continue. They continue fighting. Judas Maccabeus ends up dying in battle. And his brother takes over, and they keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. After 25 years of fighting, the Jews are granted complete political independence, something they had not had since 605 B.C., 463 years. 
So the Hasidians, who were this whole time in the military with everybody else, and they were really supporting everything that was going on, now there's no more bad guys to fight. Right? We have our political independence. So what do you do? You fight with each other, right? So the Hasidians decide they disagree on things. They were only united, really, because they had this common enemy. And so they fragment into three groups. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Essenes said, this political stuff, I just, I don't have a stomach for it. I just can't stand it. I want to just go live out in the wilderness, contemplate the law, and worship my God. And so the Essenes ended up uh, taking care of the scrolls that were uh, put in the caves near the Dead Sea. I don't know if you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the ones that formed these ascetic communities. And then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, we're not, we're not falling out of action. You know, the people need us. And the Pharisees stayed in it, and they were really supporting the idea of strict observance of, of God's laws against Hellenism, whereas the Sadducees were pro-Hellenism. They were like, look, a little Greek influence is okay. And there was this constant battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees for over a century that followed. The Pharisees, the word Pharisee means separatist. They stood for the synagogue, for the rabbi, and for prayer. Um, they were the party of the common men. They were highly respected by the people, and they stressed the new oral law. The oral law was designed to help people practice the laws of God in the modern time. Now, the law was given to Moses a thousand, more, more than a thousand years before this. Okay, So they did some updating to the law so that they could interpret it for their own time, and that was called the oral law, or the traditions of the fathers. The Sadducees, they were pro-Hellenizers. They only joined the Hasidians to fight the bad guys, to fight these, these pagans that were forcing them to sacrifice to false gods. And the Sadducees, they stood for the temple, the priest, and sacrifice. That's what they were really into. They were the party of aristocrats and the priestly class. So they were the wealthy people, uh, the landowners and so on. They were liberal politically, but conservative religiously. They believed that a re reasonable amount of Hellenism was beneficial. Okay, So that's how we end up getting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm going to talk a little bit about, more about the Pharisees and Sadducees because they're big time in the New Testament. And uh, Jesus is constantly going at it with Pharisees, isn't he? And that's because he agrees with Pharisees the most. He's not, he's not fighting with the Essenes. They're out in the desert somewhere. He's not fighting with the Sadducees. They're in the temple offering the sacrifices, selling their soul to the Roman Caesar. He's, he's fighting with the Pharisees because they're the ones closest to him. And those are the ones you usually fight the most with because you, you have dialogue on those, those points. And so the, when Jesus finally does come up against the Sadducees, you know what happens? Suddenly he finds himself executed by the Roman Empire. Because the Sadducees and the Roman Empire were like this in the area of, of the temple. The temple was a big moneymaker. All right. I want to talk to you about the Hasmonean dynasty. This is the dynasty that, where, where Judah was ruling itself. Okay? So we have, first up to bat, Mattathias. I spelled it wrong. You should say Mattathias. But that would be a good short... You know, if I, my name was Mattathias, I would go by Matthias. But anyhow, he was, he was in charge for about a year... And then his son, Judas Maccabeus, took over, also called Judah the Maccabee. And he lasted for five years. And this is the area that they fought and recovered for themselves. Next up to bat, we have the kingdom under Jonathan. Let me see here. 
So Jonathan is the one that actually uh, continues this fight once his brother Judas Maccabeus dies. He becomes the official governor of Judah. And he died when uh, the, another Antiochus, Antiochus V, tricks, uh, his general tricks him. But anyhow, under Jonathan, see these purple areas? They get annexed. He conquers these areas. So the kingdom's growing a little bit, even though it's not officially their own kingdom. It's still under the Seleucid control. And then we have Simon. Simon lasted for eight years. He was a shrewd ruler. And he made a treaty with Rome. That was his big move. He sent uh, a big present, a financial gift to Rome. And he said to Rome, look, you and me, we need to work together. You've got these Seleucids in the north of us, the Ptolemies in the south of us. We want to make a treaty with you that if either of these guys bullies us or tries to take us over, that you'll attack them. And Rome said, all right, sounds good to us. Rome's sort of plotting on taking over the world anyhow. So any reason to fight with these guys would be good. And so there's this uh, Irish limerick that goes like this. There was a young lady of Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They came back from the ride with the lady inside, and the smile was on the face of the tiger. This is from that same book I referenced before. For almost 80 years, the smile was on the face of the rider of the Roman tiger. After that, the smile was on the face of the tiger, which had swallowed the Jewish rider. So Simon made this deal with Rome, and it really worked well for a time. And then Rome said, why don't we just take you over eventually? And this is, a, this is a lesson. They trusted in man rather than trusting in God. It's the same thing we saw in the kings of Israel. They trusted in making these alliances with Egypt, the alliance with Assyria. And you know what? They don't work. We trust in God. And so he rarely needed to go to battle, right? He had a big, uh, you know, uh, the big Roman Empire had his back, right? He, he rarely needed to go to battle. But he did achieve complete political independence. And so for the first time... In 463 years, Judah was an independent kingdom. Very exciting. However, he was murdered by his power-hungry son-in-law at a banquet, along with two of his sons. However, another one of his sons, John Hyrcanus, wasn't at the banquet, and he survived. And he lasts for 30 years. And this is John Hyrcanus's rule. You ready? Look at that. Purple is what he added on. What do we see? Samaria. Samaria is now conquered forcibly converted to Judaism, which, if you're a guy, hurts. Uh, Idumea, the land that used to be called Edom, forcibly converted to Judaism at the point of a sword by John Hyrcanus. This later would, would become a problem. John Her- I should just stick to what I have here. He was crowned king and anointed high priest after his father was murdered. His dual role of king and priest offended the Pharisees. They did not like that. He hired foreign mer- mercenaries... He struck coins bearing his name. These are uh, his coins that have survived. He plundered the tomb of King David, and he stole 3,000 talents of silver. The Pharisees were so enraged, they demanded he give up being high priest. So Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus, the king and the high priest, you know what he says? All right, I'm going to be a Sadducee now. He switched to the Sadducees, which really infuriated the Pharisees, and he even started these Hellenizing measures. Now it's their own king introducing the Greekification, if I can put it like that, the Hellenizing measures. He conquered Idumea and Samaria and forcibly converted them. He destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, which would be up here, and he died in peace. 
His son, Aristobulus I, he lasted one year. But check what he did. Check out what he did in just one year. He got Galilee. He conquered all of Galilee, forcibly converted them to Judaism, and they were paying taxes to the kingdom of Judah now, or really the Hasmonean kingdom, we should call it. And so Aristobulus, in his one year, uh, this is what happened. His dad, John Hyrcanus, left his wife in charge. Apparently he didn't think his son had it in him to rule. However, the wife can't be the high priest, so his son was allowed to be the high priest. So Aristobulus says, okay... Mom's going to be in charge? I don't think so. So he imprisons his mother and starves her to death. And he murders one of his brothers, the one that was a threat. The other two he just put in jail. And he was an ardent Sadducee. He really pushed for Hellenization. He conquered Galilee and he died from a disease after only one year. So everything is a disaster. What do we have? We have just like the pagan kingdoms. The kingdom of, the, of, of God's people is acting just like the pagan kingdoms. Brother killing brother. Brother killing mother. Imprisoning their other brothers. And now we have Alexander Janius, <clears throat> who comes into play. And he conquers even more territory. Look at this. He gets this whole piece on the east side, the Gaza Strip. Uh, he really fills out the kingdom even more. He was Aristobulus' widow. Uh, that's the guy, the, the guy that died after a year. Um, his widow, Salome Alexandra, released the brother and married him. So that put him in charge. This was a violation of Mosaic law because the guy was a high priest. As a high priest, you can only marry a virgin. Okay? So now the high priest is married to the widow of his dead brother, who was nuts anyhow. Alexander Janius loved war and drinking. What a combination. He greatly enlarged the kingdom but aggravated the Pharisees so much that a six-year civil war broke out. The Pharisees, ironically, asked the Seleucids for help, who were happy to send an invading army. Then the Pharisees changed their minds and joined Alexander Janaeus in defeating the Seleucids. As punishment for their betrayal, Janaeus crucified 800 of the Pharisees and slaughtered their wives and children before their eyes as they were dying. So this is how the people of God are behaving by this point in time. We're talking about 78 B.C. Jesus is not yet born. <laughs> you know, the world needs Jesus. Okay, so he dies. Okay, the Civil War, 50,000 Jews die in the Civil War. He died trying to conquer a Greek city in Palestine. Then he dies, so guess who takes over? His wife, Salome Alexandra. Those are his coins. Salome Alexandra rules the, the queen of the Hasmonean dynasty, right? when there was a queen that ruled over the Judean Empire. And Salome was big into education. She was pretty good. Uh, she, she really pushed for literacy. She made primary education a focus uh, in a world where illiteracy was common in the land of the Hasmonean Empire. People could read, which really sets them up for the time of Jesus when we're having these disputes about the law and stuff like that. Um, okay. She was an ardent supporter of the Pharisees, so she persecuted the Sadducees, right? So now a Pharisee's in charge, the Sadducees are dying. She dies, and she has these two boys, Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II. Long story short, Aristobulus II isn't happy because his brother gets put in charge. So he takes an army, and he attacks his own brother and takes the kingdom from him. So then his brother is, is sort of sulking. 
in exile, and this wily cat named Antipater comes up to Hyrcanus II and says to him, you know, you're really the older brother. You should be in charge. Let me get you an army. We'll go, we'll go take this back. So the, the other brother comes back and takes it over. Hyrcanus takes it over, and then Aristobulus takes it over, and we have a civil war that's occurring between two brothers. And so they both appeal to Rome, say, you know, Rome, will you come settle this? Put me in charge. Here's a gift of 4,000 talents of gold. They both do the same thing. And so Rome says, you know what, I'll settle this. I'll just take you over. So in 63 BC, Rome marches into Jerusalem. And after a little three-month skirmish on the Temple Mount, they take over and annex the land of Judah and, re- and, and, and take possession of it. So now here's the kingdom. Under Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II, because of their fighting with each other so much, it got reduced to this size. And Hyrcanus II was put in charge by the Roman Empire as ethnarch, which just meant you're the guy that used to be the king, but you're not anymore. And he was in charge for a while. Then we have Antigonus, who lasted for three years. And he made an alliance with the guys out in the east, the Parthians. And they came and and made sure that Antigonus was in charge. And that really ticked off this... 25-year-old upstart named Herod the Great. Uh, And so Herod went to Rome and he said, Look, you guys just lost Palestine to the Parthian Empire. I'll get it back for you if you make me the king of the Jews. So the Roman Senate votes and they elect Herod the king of the Jews. Herod's not even a Jew. And so they give uh, Herod the Roman legions, which you don't mess with, remember? And He goes down and he's able to defeat Antigonus and take Jerusalem. And so from 37 to 4 BC, we have a non-Jewish person named Herod the Great who's in charge of the green area there. A kingdom as large as David and Solomon's, ruled over by a non-Jew, Herod the Great. Herod was a disaster. He married a teenage princess named Mariamne of the Hasmonean dynasty so that he would sort of legitimate himself. It didn't really work. He ended up killing her anyhow. And her father, uh, I'm sorry, and her grandfather, and her little brother, who's only 17, and two of his own sons, and then right before he died, a third one of his own sons. I mean, the guy was just a lunatic, a raving madman at the end there. He had high taxes, he favored the Sadducees, and he was in favor of building things. He, Herod the Great loved to build things. And so he built a temple to the God of the Jews, a temple to the God of the Greeks, a temple to the Roman emperors. You know, he would build a temple for anybody. But he had a big project in Jerusalem, renovating the temple, and that Jesus has some things to say on as well. Let's go to Matthew 2 briefly, just to close out. Matthew chapter 2 is where Jesus meets Herod the Great. Jesus was born just before Herod the Great died. When, he, when Herod was at his worst mentally, physically, he had diseases that caused his body to literally stink and to have worms. And, you know, I don't want to go into it. But and his breath smelled, you know, and he had just killed his son Antipater, who was named after his daddy. In Matthew chapter 2, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Oh, by the way, when the Romans took over Judah, they renamed it to Judea. That's why the New Testament is called Judea and the Old Testament is called Judah. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So we have these wise people from the Parthian Empire that he just defeated to get the throne in 37 BC come and say, Where is the king of the Jews? Meanwhile, Herod's title, elected by the Roman Senate, is king of the Jews. And he's there, there, we want to pay our respects to the new king. So Herod's very interested in finding this king of the Jews and wiping him out, just like he wiped out his three of his sons that he thought were conspiring. I mean, we're talking about somebody that wipes out people that are threats. And so Herod tries to find out the exact time. He finds out the location. Bethlehem, the, the, the son of David must be born in Bethlehem. That hope. Remember that hope I told you about before? That the people had of finally the son of David would be born and save us from the mess? Well, he was just born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so these wise guys come, in a good way, wise guy. These wise men come and they give the the presents to the baby. They depart by another way. And Herod the Great feels that he's been tricked. So he decides to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Something that totally fits with his personality. And so, Jesus ends up, as a baby, fleeing to Egypt as a refugee from an imperial execution. And so, that's how Jesus starts out. And I just think it's so, I think it's just so incredible to see the way the world was at that time, how they had finally, after centuries, four and a half centuries, won their political independence, where the kingdom of Judah could be established again, and it was a disaster, Brother fighting with brother. Mother killing son. Son killing mother. All this, this uh, intrigue and evil. Pharisees fighting with Sadducees. Essenes out in the desert, disengaged from everything. And then finally, the, the Hasmonean kingdom comes to an end. And now we have a non-Jew on the throne. And I bet a lot of people were saying, it's over. It's over. We were hoping that we would finally have a king out of the Hasmoneans that would rule with justice and peace. But now Herod the Great's in charge, and it's over. He wiped out the rest of the Hasmonean dynasty. He killed them all, Herod the Great. I told you he didn't like threats. And just at that lowest point, just as Herod was about to die, a little baby's born in a feeding trough. He's laid, right? And this is the, king, the true king of the Jews. And so Jesus is born into a time where the people were at a moment to really want a Savior. So I just want to have a word of prayer and then we'll take a break. Father, we ask that you would help us to help us to see how much of a Savior your Son is. Help us to understand that the way He taught was so foreign to the way the world worked, how he said to love your neighbor as yourself, how he said even to love your enemies, how he interacted with the Samaritan woman, how he reached out to people across cultural divides, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, to Pharisees. Father, may we see his example and then work out how to do that in 21st century America. Please help us as we now turn to look at your son, the solution to the problems and the chaos and the political 
intrigue of the world, then and now. Please help us as we do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.